All right, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. If this is your first time, we're glad you're here. We're continuing this morning our study of the doctrine of the last things, or what is called eschatology. And just so you know, even as I say that, uh, there's this desire that sort of creeps up in my heart where I feel like I need to qualify that we're, we're, we're talking about eschatology, but we're not weirdos. Okay? Because most of the time that I've seen people talk about eschatology and growing up, the only people that talked about eschatology were these weird churches that like met in double wide trailers. They always had these weird ambiguous names like the Missionary Holy Fire and Prophecy Institute. Those are the weird churches that are always the ones that want to talk about theology or eschatology and they're putting on these billboards down the highway that say, prepare ye your heart. And there's like angels with lasers shooting out of their eyes. That's typically what I think of when I think about eschatology. And if that's what you're wanting today, that's not what we're doing, okay? <laughs> that's not what we're doing today. Instead, I'm, I'm hoping that this discussion will be a little more biblical, and I dare say it, encouraging to the life of the believer. Today, we're talking about the return of Christ, okay? When I wrote this, I thought that adding this red here would make it kind of cool in 3D, but it just kind of looks scary, all right? So I didn't mean for that to happen, like, how will Christ return? It's supposed to be a little more happy and encouraging, but oh well, that is what it is. So today, we're talking about how will Christ return. Last week, we talked about when Christ will return. Uh, Zach counted all the letters in the Bible, divided them you know, by the square root of pi, and determined exactly when Christ is going to return. So if you missed that, well, that's a joke. Everybody's like, did he really? No, no, that's a joke. We, we don't know. We talked about that last week. But today, we're talking about how will he return, not when, but how. And kind of in order to set this up, I want to ask you all a couple of questions. And don't answer it out loud. Just kind of answer it in your heart or in your mind. What will the return of Christ be like? What will the return of Christ be like? Will it be in the same way that Christ first came into the world, where the world barely noticed? Humble, incarnate as this fragile little baby? Or will it be a bigger event? Will he actually return physically? Is he actually gonna return physically? Or is he only gonna return spiritually? Or has he already returned? Ooh, better not have missed it. And finally, will, will everyone see his return? So Jesus is a man in the same way that I'm a man, except he's fully God and fully man, and I'm just a dude. Jesus is a man, and I'm a man, and I'm standing before you, okay? Can Christians in China see me right now? No, they can't. But it says that when Jesus comes in the clouds, everyone's going to see him. Every eye will see him. How is that possible? How is that going to happen? If Christians in China don't see me right now, if, Jesus, if we're looking at Jesus, then how do people on the other side of the world see him? So these are some of the questions I want to deal with today. I will probably answer all of the questions that you've you've never asked. That's what today is all about. We're going to answer all the questions you've never asked and just a few of the questions that you really want an answer to. And, but most of the questions that you really want answers to, we're not going to deal with because the Bible probably doesn't deal with it. Okay? Here's what, how I want to do this. I'm going to just make an argument. If you have notes, uh, you'll see I have this little summary statement. Christ will return suddenly, personally, bodily, and visibly as our conquering king. He'll return suddenly, personally, bodily, and visibly as our conquering king. And these are just 
statements that we're just gonna kind of review. So this is an argument I'm making and then we're just gonna evaluate it and take it one thing at a time. And with each one of these, so for instance, Christ will return suddenly, we're gonna answer three questions. What do I mean by that when I say he's gonna return suddenly? What exactly do I mean? What does the Bible say? And why is it important to know? Why is it important to know that Christ will return suddenly? So that's how we're gonna be doing this today. All right, so let's begin. Number one, Christ will return suddenly. And here's what I mean by that. Christ's return will be abrupt. It'll be all of a sudden. Or as one of the staff members at Parkway says, all of the sudden, all right? I won't tell you who that is, but I will tell you it drives me crazy, okay? So the next time you hear somebody say all of the sudden, you'll know. I have to put up with that all the time, okay? But the return of Christ will be sudden and at a time that we do not expect. Let's look at what the Bible says. Matthew 24, 36 through 39, and then verse 44. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving a marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There's that language again. While people are saying there's peace and security. And then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So the return of Christ will come like a thief in the night. Not saying that Christ is bad or he's this evil thief or something. That's not the analogy. Christ will come like a thief in the night because you don't expect a thief. You don't perceive that there's any threat until the thief has already broken in. It'll be sudden. The return of Christ will be sudden out of nowhere when we don't expect it. Now, a question came up uh, last week, and we said we were going to address it today, and so here we are addressing it. We read these passages that say the Christ's return will be sudden and at a time that we don't expect, but then there also seem to be a couple of passages that suggest that we should expect it, that we should know when Christ is going to return. Things like 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, 4. So we just read 2 through 3, and now we're going to continue uh, up till verse 6. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. All people are saying there's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. <clears throat> and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So Paul says that, yes, it'll be sudden, but not really so sudden for you Christians. He says, you, you're not in darkness, brothers. You're not in darkness, Christians, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So what does Paul mean? Is Paul saying that we should know the exact date and the hour that Christ will return? No, he's not. Paul's not saying that we can discern 
exactly when Christ will return. That's not his, his point here. Instead, Paul is contrasting the fact that the unbeliever is completely caught off guard by the return of Christ. He's contrasting that reality with the reality that we believers should be eagerly awaiting this day's arrival. The, the unbeliever is gonna be completely caught off guard by the day of Christ's return because he's not prepared for it, he's not hoping for it, it's not even on his radar, but we are longing for his return. We're looking for it. We're waiting for this day so when it happens, we're not surprised by it. We say, here it is, this day of our salvation, finally. We're not surprised because we knew this whole time that the thief was coming, we just didn't know when. So let me give an illustration. There's this amazing TV show <clears throat> that aired for five, season on, five seasons on uh, the network TLC. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that network. TV, TLC is just a TV channel that like, offers a mashup of like, reality TV and like, home makeover shows. You know, it's, it's what's always on in the doctor's office whenever you're there. It's on this TV in the corner. For some reason, TLC or HGTV is always on. That's how good the content is. The doctors know, okay? But they used to have this show, and this is real. I'm not making this up. The show was called, I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant. Yes, it's good. How many of you have heard of this, song, of this show? It is, it's just mind-blowing. I'm like on the edge of my seat the whole time. It's just an entire show, for those of you who don't know, about ladies telling these stories about how they had no idea they were pregnant. They had no idea, no suspicion. They're like, well, yeah, I started getting nauseous every morning, and like, I gained weight rapidly. And I had this crazy, it felt like my hormones were all out of whack. And like, the interviewer was like, how did you not know? Like, how did you not? And they're like, I just thought I was really stressed. I had no idea. It's, it's crazy, most of these ladies had no clue until they're like out eating lunch with a friend, and then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, I kind of have my, my tummy kind of hurts, kind of a bit of a tummy ache, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse, and the next thing they know, they're having a baby in the bathroom of a Taco Bell. It's amazing. I don't know what kind of life, like surprises life has thrown at you, but I guarantee you've never had a baby in a Taco Bell. It's, in, it's insane. And that's what the return of Christ is like for the unbeliever. They had no idea, no suspicion. They were in no way prepared. And so when it comes, there's, there's no escape. There's no escape, only sudden destruction, which is what I call the bathrooms at Taco Bell. <laughs> when Paul tells us that day shouldn't surprise us like a thief, just think of a more typical pregnancy, okay? Once you end the near, the, end the near, once you near the end of that third trimester, you don't know when you're gonna go into labor. You don't know when it's going to be time for that baby to arrive. So what do you do? Well, you have the car seat ready and you have this little overnight bag packed for the hospital and you have the crib purchased and the room decorated and you prepare yourself for the day that those labor pains arrive. And when they begin, you're not thinking, oh, what's happening to me? No, you know, you're not surprised by it. You're not caught off guard because you've been longing for this day. You've been waiting for this day to finally arrive and so you're filled with rejoicing. That is the response that the believer has. So what Paul's saying is it doesn't catch you off guard. You're not surprised by it because you've been longing for this day. Unbeliever has no clue. It's not on their radar. But you don't need to be surprised by it because you're aware that this day is coming and even more so you're longing for it and eagerly awaiting the day. So that's what the Bible has to say about the sudden return of Christ. Why is, it why is it important to know that Christ will return suddenly? And here's, here's what I think. It changes the way we live today. 
Knowing that Christ will return suddenly changes the way we live our lives today. Since, since Christ could come at any time, all of a sudden, or all of the sudden, even today, that means that what we're doing now actually matters. How you're living your life today matters. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 45 through 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? So the, the master has given this servant a task. What's the task? To give the household food when it's the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Blessed is the servant that when the master comes back, the servant's doing what the master asks. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, he's taking way too long. And begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is no different than Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians to keep awake and be sober. Live today in the way that you would like Christ to find you living when he returns. I'm not saying that if you sin two seconds before Christ returns that you'll be condemned. We, we read this in light of the whole of scripture. So there's, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ I am saying, like we've been hearing John talk about in 1 John, to walk in the light, to have nothing to do with the darkness, to live as children of the light. I like what uh, the great theologian Herman Bovink says. He says, what we do must give evidence of who we are. What we do, the way we act, the way we live must give evidence of who we are. So if we are indeed Christ's, if we are indeed citizens of his kingdom, servants of his lordship, then what we do today ought to give evidence of who we are. So just notice how the suddenness and the unexpectedness of Christ's return, it, it reorients our priorities today. It ought to, ought to sanctify how we live. Would you continue to walk in darkness if you knew that Christ was coming today? Would you continue to refuse to confess your sin if you knew Christ was coming today? Would you continue to refuse to forgive your brother or your sister if you knew that Christ was coming today? Would you continue to gossip in the hallways? Would you continue to you know, look up your, an ex on Facebook? Would you continue to refuse to work on your marriage and, and place your hope in maybe getting a divorce if Christ was coming today? See, the, the return of Christ, it changes our perspective on whatever we're doing today. It shifts our priorities. It wakes us up to walk in righteousness when we'd rather just lie down in the darkness of sin. So that being said, Christ will not only return suddenly, but moving to our next point, he'll also return personally. Christ will return personally. Now, what does that mean? Christ himself will return because Christ himself is the only one who will and who can make all things new. He's not gonna send an angel to do the work for him. He's not gonna raise up a prophet or some sort of Jesus 2.0 character like David Koresh or something. There's a pastor who used to say that what was amazing about the whole David Koresh thing is that he's this guy that's convincing people that he's the perfect son of God while wearing glasses. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He's just a little, a little nearsighted. 
But no, when we talk about the return of Christ, there's only one person who has the authority and the power to establish the kingdom of God, to defeat sin and death once and for all, and that person is Jesus himself. The scripture affirms this, John 14, one through three. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, Jesus speaking here. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The Lord himself will descend. And this next one's just describing the resurrected Jesus ascending, leaving this earth. It says, when he had said these things, this is Acts 1, 9 through 11. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, that one, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And finally, Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that Christ, the one who offered, has been offered to bear the sins of many, that Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So in case you had any doubt, which I doubt any of you did, when we speak of the return of Christ, we're literally talking about Christ himself returning. The Lord himself, this Jesus, the one who bore the sins of many, will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And the reason we know that it will be Jesus who returns it will be Jesus who personally returns rather than some sort of intermediary is because Jesus is the only one who is worthy of doing so. Listen to Revelation 5, 1 through 5. John's seeing this vision, and this is what he describes. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So there's a scroll, and opening the scroll is what commences the judgment of the enemies of the kingdom of God. If you listened, if you were here for Zach's talk on the symbols in Revelation, you should go back and listen to that if you missed it. Uh, but we, we somewhat talked about these, this scroll and these, the judgments that come from it. <clears throat> and so people are trying to find someone of wor worthy of executing such judgment upon the earth. And we read that no angel and no man in heaven or on earth were able to open the scroll, except one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, Jesus. He's conquered, and therefore he's the only one that's worthy. So there's no possibility of Christ's return being impersonal or someone else because no one else other than Christ can actually do all that his return entails. Resurrect all humans ever, judge the nations, fulfill the hope of the gospel, exercise dominion over the earth as the true and better Adam. Who else can do that? No one, only Jesus. Uh, a couple weeks back, this is going to be fun, I'm going to write on this board. Uh, a couple weeks back, Jeff introduced us to Venn diagrams, 
which was a lot of fun. He did these little jokey things. He would make these categories like, you know, someone that's a younger staff member and someone who looks like a Ken doll, and therefore that's Jared. Jared's the only one that matches that description. And so, uh, you know, I thought it'd be fun to, to do my own. And so if I was making these Venn diagrams, I said someone that's old on staff, okay, like one foot in the grave, you know, that leaves two guys, Carl and Jeff, right? Really old staff members at Parkway. But then I add this second category of hair. Well, that's Jeff, nobody else, okay? Carl can't fit into that. But if I then qualify it and I, I say instead it's someone who looks like they actually exercise dominion or control over their hair, well, that rules Jeff out and leaves Carl, okay? <laughs> Carl doesn't have a lot of it, but what he does have, he controls very well, okay? So, as you add categories, it becomes harder and harder to find someone who fits all of the categories, right? And so this is me, okay? I'm a type one diabetic, type one, not my fault diabetes, okay, as opposed to the other. There's some beef between the type one and type two community. So, if you're a type two diabetic and that joke offends you, that's also not my fault, okay? I'm a type one diabetic, I'm a baseball fan, okay? This is me. I love watching the great British baking show on Netflix, it's a great show, tune in on Thursday night, I'm just kidding, I don't know. And I'm on staff at the Parkway Church, okay? It may be possible that there might be one of you in here, I'm looking for him, he's not here today, It's a type one diabetic and a baseball fan, okay? There's more of us, we're everywhere. Um, and that's Josh, we'll give a shout out to Josh. Uh, but he's not on staff at Parkway, and he's probably not a weirdo like me and enjoys weird British baking shows, okay? So just the more categories that you add to this, you see the harder it becomes to actually find someone that, mits, that fits in the middle, right? This is gonna blow your mind. Ooh. So when we talk about Christ, or whoever is the one who initiates and establishes and ushers in the new, the new heavens and the new earth. Sorry, y'all are like, what's happening on the board? You'll never know. Um, this person has to be several different things. For instance, he has to be this God-man. He has to be uh, one who is over able to judge the uh, men of the earth and judge all the nations, but also has to be one who has, has paid the debt for the sins of the earth. He also has to be sinless so that he is righteous and actually able to exercise authority over sin and resurrected because he's conquered the grave and exercises authority over death. And notice that the person that's talked about in Revelation is consistently, though he's a man, worshiped by men. No one else in scripture gets that. There's all the time we'll see an angel come and declare a message to someone and they'll bow down to worship the angel and they say, whoa, 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 whoa don't do that. Don't do that. That, that. Only God receives that sort of treatment. Even in the book of Revelation, towards the end, John, this guy's telling John all this crazy stuff and John bows down to worship him. He says, what are you doing? Don't, don't worship me, worship the lamb. So we see all of these different categories converge and only one person can actually fulfill that category. Here, I'll do it this way. Oh yeah, Cairo. Only Christ can actually do what is required of this coming savior who establishes the kingdom. So all of that being said, ho hopefully that was clarifying, maybe more confusing. It seems pretty clear that the scriptures assert a personal return of Christ. Now why is that important? Why is it important to know that Christ will return personally? First, it keeps us from following after false Christ, okay? 
keeps us from chasing after false Christ. If anyone shows up here today and says, I'm Christ, and they're like a white dude who was born in Houston, we can say, nope, he's not, because he's not the same guy. We can just throw it out. Whatever he says, we can just throw it out, because when Christ returns, it's actually going to be him who returns. Knowing that it is Christ who's going to return and not someone else, it makes it really easy to discern whether or not Christ has returned yet. You just look, and he hasn't. Second, Christ's personal return demonstrates that salvation is found in no one else but him. He's the only one. Salvation is found in no one else but him. There's no secret other person that you're going to be judged by, some secret other person that you have to please, only Christ. His standard is the only one that matters. You don't need anything else outside of Jesus. And so I hope that that will just encourage you this morning. The fact that Jesus will be the one that returns to judge the nations means that his judgment is the only one that you have to worry about. And for those who are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you don't even have to worry about it. So kind of my encouragement, put to death this legalism that says that you have to go beyond the will of the Father. You have to go beyond the command of Christ in order to be saved. It doesn't make you holier. It just makes you a more entitled sinner. Christ and Christ alone will return, and therefore... We trust in him and him alone. So Christ will return suddenly. He'll return personally. And Christ will also return bodily. Here's what I mean by that. Christ, who is fully God and fully man, will return physically and with a glorified body. So therefore, we we reject any notion that Christ's return would only be a spiritual return. No, Christ who is fully God and fully man will return physically and with a glorified body. We reject any notion that Christ's return would only be spiritual. More on that in a second, but first let's read some passages. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Christ receives this glorious body after his resurrection, but just because it's glorious doesn't then mean that he doesn't have a body. He does have a body. Remember his disciple, Thomas. Everyone's excited about Jesus resurrecting from the dead. They're all amped, and Thomas kind of this little buzzkill. Walks in, he's like, if I don't see that dude, if I don't see a body, then I'm not gonna believe. If I can't put my fingers in the holes of his hands, feel where that spear went in on his side, I won't believe. And so what does Jesus do? He, he emphasizes the physicality of his resurrection. John 20, 27 through 28. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And then shortly thereafter, at Jesus' ascension, Acts 1, 9 through 11 again. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, He, Christ, with his body, was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven, and they could see him because he's physical and he has a body, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who has a body, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The same way you see him leaving now, physically, with the clouds, he's going to return physically with the clouds. Jesus will come in the same way he left as a man with a body. But 
The reason I'm stressing this is there are some who have argued that Christ's return will not be a physical one, but rather a spiritual return. Christ won't come down with the body, but instead will only return to the earth spiritually, okay? I almost did like jazz and spiritually, okay? So for example, some will say that Christ actually already returned and he returned at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so he sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit, not his body. And so now the spirit indwells believers here on earth and is slowly taking over the world with Christian values and morals. Okay, that's what some will say. How many of you have seen the latest season of uh, Stranger Things on Netflix? Okay, so the spirit's essentially like the monster, the mind flayer, who's just going around indwelling people and then keeps indwelling people until he has world domination. That's what these people are arguing. We'll know that the return of Christ is complete when the whole world is ruled by Christian morals and everybody's really Christian and they agree with Christianity and they're nice to each other and there's no more sin and it's this beautiful utopia slowly, gradually over time. But others will reject that idea, some of the idea, and they'll say that, oh, of course not, the, the return didn't happen at Pentecost, but then they'll agree with everything else. So they'll say that Christ doesn't need a body because his spirit now indwells believers. And what do we call all these believers when they get together? The body of Christ. So he doesn't have a body, there's the body, indwelled by the spirit. And the church will usher in this return slowly over time by electing Christian leaders into office and having Christian policies that grow in popularity until the whole world believes. And again, it's this utopia of perfection. I wish I could spend a lot of time on this, but I don't have that much time. Uh, there's a theologian, William Adams Brown. He was this influential, uh, very liberal Presbyterian minister during World War I. This is how he described it. Talking about the return of Christ. Not through an abrupt catastrophe, as in the early Christian hope, what the church used to believe when they were all dumb, right? Not through an abrupt catastrophe, but by the slower and surer method of spiritual conquest, the ideal of Jesus shall yet win the universal ascent it deserves, and his spirit dominate the world. This is the truth for which the doctrine of the second advent stands. That's what is being talked about scripturally whenever we talk about the second coming of Christ, that really the Spirit's just gonna take over the world one country at a time until it's just world domination. So just real quick, I just wanna throw all of this theology into the trash, okay? <laughs> so first, this view rejects the clear testimony of scripture, okay? When Paul talks about our human bodies being transformed to be like Christ's glorified human body, these guys just go, nah, they just throw that out, okay? We can't do that. But second, if the Bible says that the man Jesus Christ will return, then the one interpretation you can't walk away with is that the Bible's saying that he won't return. That's the one thing you can't believe. And that's what these folks are saying. They're saying that, that Jesus, at worst, he was mistaken, or he's, some, he's a liar. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But actually what I think they're doing is instead they're actually misunderstanding the Trinity, or worse, they're denying the Trinity altogether. So God is one, and he exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, okay? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They're distinct persons, but one being, one God, okay? So when Christ, the Son, says, I'm gonna return, this distinct person of the Trinity, I'm gonna return, and you say, that's what he did when the Spirit came. 
you're saying that the Spirit and Christ are the same, which they're not. The Spirit's not a man, Christ is. The Spirit cannot die, but Christ in his humanity did. So to, to argue that the return is actually the coming or the slow domination of the Holy Spirit is to deny that God is one with three distinct persons. It's a denial of Trinitarianism. So if, if, the, if that Trinitarian theology is like, that's crazy, uh, just go back and listen to other lessons. That's all I'm doing today. I'm just pointing to other lessons you should listen to, okay? So go back and listen to that in our Doctrine of God series. All that to say, we cannot hold that view that Christ's return is really just a spiritual return. But instead, we affirm with the scriptures that Christ will return bodily. Now, why is this important to know? First, Christ's bodily return demonstrates the glory and the good of his creation. Demonstrates the glory and the good of his physical creation. When God created mankind, they had bodies. And what did he call it? Good. He called that good. And though our bodies are corrupted by sin and death, that is, we're not Gnostic. We're not those who believe that whatever is physical is bad and evil and whatever is spiritual is good and right. No, to be human is to be this unity of body and soul. This was God's original design, and it is a good design. At least that's what he thinks. So if the man Jesus Christ returned without a body, then he would be this incomplete human. He would, he would not be complete in what it means to be humanity. Or even worse, this would suggest that the original design of humanity, this unity of a body and soul, was actually a mistake. And God's improved on his original idea. That can't be right. So instead, we recognize and look forward to the goodness of creation, the physical transformation that we and all creation will experience when Christ comes and he comes bodily. Second, Christ's bodily return is the means by which God will dwell with man. Christ's bodily return is the means by which God will dwell with man. Revelation 21, one through four says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So let me ask you this. Does God dwell with man right now? It's kind of a complicated question. Yes, because God is omnipresent, so he dwells everywhere, okay? There is no dwelling place. because he, He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. And then the Spirit of God dwells within believers, so that's even a, a different, a, a more uh, intimate degree of dwelling that we experience with God. But then in the midst of even that, Revelation 21 talks about something new, something new that hasn't been here, that isn't here right now. So what is it that's different? So through the Old Testament, we see these physical representations of the presence of God like Moses builds the tabernacle and it said that the dwelling place of God is in Israel or when the temple is built, that that's, serves as a symbol of God's dwelling, his special presence among the nation of Israel. And so with that in mind, just listen to how John describes the first coming of Jesus in John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us 
We've seen his glory. That glory is something that you only see in the temple. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then just a chapter later, John tells this amazing story about an exchange Jesus had with some critics. John 2, 19 through 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. John's point is the embodied, the incarnate Christ is this special presence dwelling among us. That's what he's trying to get across. The person of Jesus is this living, breathing temple. And so then when John's writing the revelation, this apocalypse, he's looking forward to the day that once again this dwelling will be a reality among mankind. The special dwelling, this physical presence of God that was previewed at Jesus' first coming will be fully realized at his second coming. So, Christ's bodily return assures us that we will dwell and commune with our God in perfect joy and peace forevermore. Another pregnancy analogy, okay? (laughs) For some weird reason, all the illustrations I wanted to give this week had something to do with pregnancy. Kelsey and I are not pregnant. Nope, we're not pregnant. I don't know why, but it is what it is. Something that fascinates me about pregnancy is this extreme difference between your final weeks of being pregnant and your first weeks with your baby at home. Because here's what's weird in my mind. The baby's been living with you in your home the whole time. You've had that baby the whole time. It's the presence of that baby's been there. But the moment that baby comes out, everything changes, right? You sleep a lot less. That baby's presence has been there the whole time, but there's something about being able to see and hug and, and marvel at your baby that makes the presence so much more realized. And this is what the bodily return of Christ grants us. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us right now. What a gift. But just imagine the depth that comes if Christ were to walk in this room right now and you could hear from his lips, from his physical lips, him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. What a day that'll be. So Christ will return suddenly, personally, bodily, and consequentially, visibly. Therefore, all of that means he will return visibly. Christ's return will be seen by all of humanity. And this point just follows all the others because if Christ returns personally and bodily, then obviously his return will be visible. Christ's return will not be, as the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, some secret return that happened in 1914, all right? Look around, they say, oh yes, Jesus is enthroned. You go, he's doing a terrible job, right? It's not gonna be some secret return. No, the return will be seen not just by Christians or Reformed Baptists or Americans, but by all, by all, by the whole world. Again, the scriptures leave us with no doubt. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Hebrews 9, 26 through 28. But as it is, he has appeared once, Remember when everybody talks about the incarnation, we have no trouble, we, we don't doubt that at all, that he appeared once and he was physical. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Finally, Revelation 1.7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, 
Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. How can you appear if you're invisible? You can't. How can you appear if you can't be seen? Well, you can't. Every eye will see him. Those who pierced him, his enemies, believers, every nation and tribe, all will see him coming with the clouds. And so here's my weird question. This is where my my mind trails off. And so this may not even be helpful to answer, but how is that gonna work? How is every eye gonna see him? Again, if Jesus is returning bodily, then his body's limited by space and time. It's a different day in China, okay? He cannot be in two places at once, otherwise he would have two bodies. And then you got multiple Christ, and that's a huge mess. So how's he gonna pull this off? How's everyone gonna be able to see him coming with the clouds? And I'd love to spend a lot more time on this, but again, because I'm a generous person, nice to you, I'm not gonna just talk here for two hours. So I'll just share my personal, non-official view. So whatever I'm about to say, it's not the answer that scripture gives, because scripture doesn't really give an answer. I'm just, you know, just take whatever I'm saying with a really big grain of salt. Whatever that means, I don't understand that phrase. Here's my view. I have no idea what that means, okay? There you go, amen, next. I'm just kidding. I think that somehow everyone will be gathered before Christ. I feel pretty confident that we'll all be gathered before him in this way, every eye will see him. There are a few moments in the book of Revelation where tribes and nations and great multitudes are gathered before Christ and he's always judging these groups or he's being worshiped by these groups. So I think that maybe people will be gathered, whatever that means, when he's coming with the clouds, and that's how they'll see him. But I don't know. Here's what I don't think. What a lot of my professors at DTS would say, that every eye will see Christ because someone's gonna video it and put it on YouTube and it's gonna go viral, okay? I had professors say that, they, they are confident. I don't think John is gonna, is, when he's writing Revelation, he's depending on the future existence of the internet in order to make his point. I don't think that that's what he is doing. So there you go, a question that's left you with only more questions. Why is it important to know that Christ will return visibly? I think this is actually really good news because first we don't have to figure out some code. He simply shows up and he says, look, here I am. If there's some invisible spiritual return, then how will we be certain that it happened? We don't have to worry about that though because Christ will evidently make it plain. That's really encouraging to me. I don't have to figure anything out. No Da Vinci Code or anything. Just, there he is. Oh, yeah, he's returned. He's right there. Second, a visible return protects sound doctrine. Protects sound doctrine. Christ's promise to return visibly protects the church from those who might try to claim that Christ has already returned. Matthew 24, 23 through 27, Jesus says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, Don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness. It's it's a secret. Come join me in the wilderness. He's over there. Or they say, "Uh, look, he's in the inner rooms. Don't believe that. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says, trust me, you'll know when I return. It's like a big old flash of lightning across the sky. It will be very obvious. It'll be impossible to miss. So the visible return of Christ is obvious. It's visible and it protects sound. It protects the church from false doctrine. 
And finally, the visible return of Christ in an instant eliminates our doubts. In an instant. Our faith will become sight. What we now see dimly, we're going to see face to face. But not only that, we'll be vindicated. The devil himself and all of our enemies will instantly be put on notice. Their schemes and their reign will have to come to, the en- come to an end. And that's not something you get with an invisible return, okay? The idea, it's, it's like you're this kid that's getting bullied on the playground, and you're like, hey, man, my, my big brother's gonna come in here, and he's gonna beat all y'all up. And they're like, oh, yeah, where's your brother? It's like, well, he's invisible. You're like, no, you're gonna get beat up, okay? That's not <laughs> happening. But instead, you're like, oh, yeah, no, my brother's right over here. And he's like, Mike Tyson in his prime. Then that's a different story. They're like, oh, no, <laughs> that's terrifying. When Christ returns, all will see him, all will bow down, and we will rejoice in the salvation he brings and the destruction of our enemy, the devil. And finally, Christ will return as our conquering king. This is kind of just a summary of everything that we've said. When Christ returns, he's going to establish his eternal kingdom, and he's going to conquer his enemies. All of This crazy imagery in Revelation, these thrones and horses and scrolls being opened, these are all just these images, these symbols declaring that Christ is king, that he's a king. That's why he sits on a throne. He's Lord of all. That's why he judges nations. Every election season, it's amazing to see the amount of angst people have regarding who's about to be leading our country. So much so that like when that person is elected, the stock market like kind of dips down. So much is tied up in who is leading because the leadership of these politicians, it shapes what our lives look like. If they make bad decisions, it affects us and we suffer the consequences. And here is our encouragement this morning. We look forward to a day where Christ is our leader. Jesus will be our king forever. He will conquer all who oppose his reign and all will be submitted to his rule and reign. The reason that there's chaos and sickness and war and darkness and evil is because there are forces opposing the reign of Christ, including us. We tend to oppose the reign of Christ and one day he's gonna come and abolish all of that. Every single thing that opposes the reign of Christ will be no more. And he won't make bad decisions. He'll only do what is perfect and good and right and will live in perfect peace and joy forever and evermore. So I just want to end by by asking a few questions, okay? And Jeff, you can get ready. Jeff's going to come up here and we're going to talk about some questions. But first, I'm going to ask you the questions. You're on trial, not me. What is your attitude toward the return of Christ? Is it a source of fear Is it a source of angst? Are you apathetic toward the return? It's just not something you think about because of all the crazies? Or is it a source of encouragement for you? The biblical authors emphasize the return of Christ as this great beacon of encouragement in the midst of our present suffering. Is that how you view it? I pray that it would not just be this topic we tend to avoid or that we obsess over. Either one, a happy medium. But rather, when times are difficult, we would know that our king is coming soon. That when we're enjoying the gifts that God has given us on earth, that we would look forward to the day when we can enjoy these gifts apart from sin and death. And that we would not grow weary if we feel like Christ is delayed, if he's taking too long. That we would stay awake, be sober, fix our eyes on things that are above, not be lulled into sleep by sin. And that Christ would find us doing the will of the Father uh, when, he had, when he returns. 
That's it. So with that being said, I'll, let's answer all your questions. Come on up here, old Jeffrey. Called him old Jeffrey because he's old. Old disheveled Jeffrey. <laughs> disheveled. First question. Why do British bakers call cookies biscuits? <laughs> it's a real question. This will be the only time we'll ever say this in theological quibbing. Uh, Google it. Google it. Yeah. Google's not good for theological things, but it is good for why they call things biscuits. Uh, okay, first real question. When will we talk about the two witnesses? I assume this is the two witnesses that you encounter in Revelation 11, if that is the uh, impetus of the question. We actually already have kind of addressed it uh, in our intro to Revelation and then in our... Um, our lesson on symbolism in Revelation, we kind of talked about it, and so I'd encourage you to, to go back there. And so basically what you, you have is a number of different views uh, as far as who the witnesses are. In fact, I met a guy one time, and I was he talking to him, and he said, hey, I'm one of the two witnesses. <laughs> and I was like, I need security, like right now. <laughs> this guy's messed up. And, uh, and so you have various views. You have uh, people who think it's Enoch and Elijah. If you know the story from the Old Testament, both of them were kind of taken they didn't really die. And, uh, and then you have uh, other views that kind of say that these two witnesses are two future prophets. They're going to come up. Um, but uh, the view that I actually hold, so this is not necessarily the view of the Parkway Church, but the view I hold is that uh, this is more of a symbolic thing. It's not referring to two individuals, uh, but the two witnesses are symbolic for the church's witness. And so the reason I think that is because uh, they are described as lampstands. And if you read the beginning of the book of Revelation, the churches are described as lampstands. So the same sort of symbolic imagery. You also have uh, the fact that the two witnesses will be seen throughout the entire earth. Like Tim was saying, I don't think that that's a reference to YouTube. That means everybody has the internet. Everybody happens to be watching it at that exact moment or whatever it, uh, it might be. And so uh, I think that the two witnesses represent just the church's prophetic witness throughout the earth. And so that's my uh, personal view on that. But go back and listen to those lessons. Anything you want to add? I agree. Great. <laughs> Second question. 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 Uh, how will we recognize Jesus? Will we need to ask the same question as Thomas asked? Will there be some sort of uh, skepticism? So I'll give some initial thoughts and turn it over to you. So you ever meet someone who gives you directions and they say something like, uh, turn right at the old tree, you can't miss it. And you're like, every tree you look at, you're like, that looks kind of old. I'm not sure if that's the one or not. And, uh, and so we might think that that's kind of like the return of Christ. And uh, that's not the way it is. And, uh, and so it is really this can't miss sort of thing. How will you know that it's Jesus? Because you are meeting him in the air and the dead are being raised. And so you're, that's something you can't miss, all right? And, uh, and so, yes, there will be no sort of skepticism. Is that really him? Is that not him? Whatever it might be, that's the exact sort of thing that the Bible is trying to get us away from. If you have to go out into the wilderness or you have to go into this inner room in order to see Jesus, that's not the real Jesus. Everyone will know when Jesus returns, it will be that visible. It will be that uh, cosmic. It will be that cataclysmic, all those kinds of things. Anything you want to add? Yeah, just the, the New Testament authors are trying to make a point that there is a difference between the first advent and the second advent. 
The first one, there is this, you're looking for confirmation. You're looking for these signs. You're looking to make sure, is this little baby here, is this actually, is he from the line of David? You're, you're asking all of these questions to confirm it. This one, there's, there's no need for that. It's a huge cosmic event that is very different from that original advent. Uh, next, does Thomas's skepticism that we read about in, uh, was that John 20 or something? Yeah. Uh, does Thomas's skepticism also have a hidden meaning of how we should test teachers? And so I think this is a really good example of the right truth from a wrong text. And uh, so the Bible does say that we should test teachers, that we should uh, examine prophecies, all those kinds of things. That has nothing to do with what's going on in John chapter 20. In John 20, Thomas's question is not seen as a good thing. Thomas's question is seen as a sign of disbelief. And, uh, and so to use that text to talk about something that would be a good thing would be a butchering of that text. So again, should we test teachers? Yes. Is that what John 20 is about? No. That's great. Um, last one. Will Jesus be with believers in the new Jerusalem? You want to tackle that or you want me to? You got it. Okay. I, it sounds like I didn't. I, did, I thought I answered that. <laughs> but maybe I think I you did. I think most of these you kind of answered. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we'll see. Uh, so in Revelation 21, so I think Tim read 1 through 4 or something like that. So if you keep going there, um, if you have a Bible and you want to flip to it, you're welcome to do so. Revelation 21, 22 through 23 says, And I saw no temple in the city. Listen to this next phrase. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And, uh, and so you have a clear sort of reference there that there will be no need for a temple. Why? Because the temple is where God dwells with man, and Jesus Christ is now the place where God dwells with man. And so Jesus will dwell with us, not just in the New Jerusalem as in some sort of a, a small little city or something like that, but on the entire earth. What we see... In, uh, in the book of Revelation is what began as, if you look at the book of Genesis, what begins as a small little garden has now expanded throughout the entire earth. And what was a garden is now a city. It's been cultivated. And, uh, and so Jesus will dwell with his people and the entire earth will be submitted to his, uh, his rule and reign and control and authority and all of those kinds of things. So will Jesus be with believers in the new Jerusalem? Yes. Amen. That is our hope. Okay. I think there was another question that came in after uh, I was getting up to walk over here. So if you have other questions that didn't get answered, feel free to email us or stick around and uh, we will answer them. But uh, first, Tim, you want to pray? Yes. Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you for your word and that we can trust that your word is good and right and true. We thank you for this, this hope, this encouragement that you've given us in the midst of suffering. We live in a world that is full of darkness and sin and, and evil, and so we are dismayed, and we, we wonder why you have delayed, and we're discouraged, and we uh, ourselves are, we find ourselves sinning, and we feel like we, we can't stop, and it drives us crazy, and I thank you that you've given us this hope of your future coming. You've given us this hope of resurrection, that you appeared to... Uh, hundreds of witnesses to confirm that you, Christ, had, had resurrected and that you will eventually do that uh, for all of us. We thank you for this blessed hope. I pray that this hope would transform the way that we live today. I pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us, 
as your word says, purify us as we think about uh, your return. I pray now as we uh, go to hear about 1 John, Lord, that you would encourage us as well. It also deals with the end. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would just rejoice uh, in your good news and your gospel. Your gospel is not just that you died for sins, but also that you're going to save the world, that you're going to redeem all things. You don't just redeem us, you redeem all things. And so we recognize that your future return is the fulfillment of your glorious gospel. So we rejoice in the gospel of the kingdom. I pray now that you would be glorified as we go and you uh, worship you and as we hear from your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.